another in our uh, series of podcast episodes on the extended public health enterprise in the U.S. I'm Dave Spicer, Executive Vice President of Corporate Strategy at ICF. And joining me today, I'm excited to say, is Dr. Norman Oliver, Virginia's uh, State Health Commissioner. Uh, Dr. Oliver, welcome. Thank you. Glad to uh, be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I really appreciate your taking the time. I know these are exceptionally busy times uh, for folks in your role. Um, as a means, brief means of introduction before we get started on the main topic, I was wondering if you could give us just a brief introduction and your summary of your personal journey that kind of led you to the leadership role you're in today. Oh boy, that's a long story. Um, so I, I trained as a uh, family uh, physician um, and uh, family docs tend to have a um, orientation towards not just uh, the patient sitting in front of you, but how that patient's related to family and how that family's related to community. And I had a general interest in uh, community health uh, over the years of my uh, career as a uh, academic family physician. I got more and more involved with public health. Um, I was at the University of Virginia until uh, 2017. I was there for about 20 years, 21 years and um, got involved in a lot of uh, work with our local health department and then um, had an opportunity to become a deputy commissioner in uh, the Virginia Department of Health uh, as the uh, deputy commissioner for population health and then um, the, in 2018 uh, was appointed by the governor um, to become state commissioner. Well that's a that's actually a, a a pretty kind of robust journey. It's uh, not a lot of twists and turns at all. It's a pretty much a, a a rise into the a position of passion for you, it sounds like. Yes, it was. And uh, I'm very excited about it. Although I don't think I was uh, planning on falling into the middle of the worst pandemic since 1918. <laughs> well, we can only address the challenges that are put in front of us, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it might help if we start out with talking about what the overall scope of the Virginia Department of Health is, you know, what the department's responsible for, uh, just to kind of set the stage for, mm -hmm. for the rest mm -hmm. of the conversation. Yeah. Um, Virginia Department of Health um, is responsible for a lot of things. Um, <clears throat> we have 42 lines of uh, service that are defined for us and um, the code, um, the Virginia um, law, and um, in the uh, budget. Um, <clears throat> everything from assuring that there's no um, coliform bacteria in the oysters and the um, oyster beds in Virginia to making sure there's no lead in the water to um, uh, ensuring that the uh, food you get in restaurants is uh, not only nutritious, but uh, safe to eat from a health point of view, um, to looking at chronic disease and how uh, a heart disease or diabetes or obesity or smoking uh, is tracking in, in the Commonwealth and doing what we can to help people um, um, prevent uh, those diseases. Uh, to dealing with outbreaks of uh, infectious diseases. 
Yeah, I think uh -huh. I had heard of that last one recently. <laughs> yes. So, um, so we we have a very wide range of uh, responsibilities, um, and right now, of course, we're mostly uh, focused on uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, but these other activities are still ongoing, so it's really uh, quite a challenge to have a robust response to the pandemic while ensuring that other aspects of public health are uh, taken care of. So obviously the state fits into a larger context, as you and I talked about uh, previously. Can you talk a little bit about the delineation of roles at the state level, how you interact with the uh, federal public health agencies and mm -hmm. your role in providing leadership to the counties. Yes, yes. So uh, the Virginia Department of Health is one of um, probably about a third to half of the health departments around the country that um, are referred to as centralized uh, health departments. And what is meant by that is that the 35 health districts in uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia are actually part of the state health department. You take a state like, say, um, Massachusetts, that's not the case. The, the state health department is an entity, and then the local health departments are completely separate. Um, and what that means for us is that we can, as a state, set strategic priorities and, and as a health department, and that those strategic priorities are the strategic priorities in all 35 of our districts. Um, it, um, the other thing that happens is my authorities that are um, <clears throat> stipulated in the code, uh, like say restaurant inspection, um, I can delegate to local uh, health departments uh -huh. and, and then they have that same authority. So a local health district uh, can um, deploy their um, environmental health specialists, they do the restaurant inspections, and if they find a restaurant is, you know, got a rat infestation and, and uh, they're given instructions on how to deal with it and they don't deal with it, then they, they have the authority to suspend that restaurant's uh, license under uh, the state code uh, because I've delegated that authority to them. Um, on things like like with COVID-19, where um, there's a, a tremendous need for resources, you know, we, we do we do uh, case investigation and contact tracing for sex. This is something we do all the time, right? So we do that for sexually transmitted diseases, for example. Um, so there's there's normally a team of case investigators and contact tracers that are in a local health department. But with COVID-19, hundreds and perhaps thousands of cases in a local health district, they needed far more resources than that. So at the state level, we organized to increase our workforce. We increased our workforce by more than a third over the last couple of months in order to supply our local health uh, districts with um, hundreds and hundreds of uh, case investigators and contact tracers. Uh, so that's a relationship we have. And, and the, the central office uh, plays a big role in helping provide um, the sort of data and data ana 
analytics that the local health departments need and carrying out their work uh, in partnership with local jurisdictions and their other partners in their uh, local areas. And so you all, I'm assuming, are, I mean, probably quite clearly are the ones who provide me with my daily dose of uh, uh, data goodness when I look at the number of COVID cases in Northern Virginia exactly. every day. Exactly, right? Right. exactly. That data was done here and we provide the, the uh, dashboards and all those sorts of things that um, you can either get at our site and I'm sure in Northern Virginia, the local health department takes that data and they might slice and dice it differently um, to, for consumption by you and others. You, you mentioned the federal government and, and you know, we, uh, we uh, as a state health department want to uh, be sure that we're aligning our guidance with the guidance that's coming from um, the CDC. Um, we have a, a agreements with the CDC to share data with them about what's happening here in, in Virginia. And then we collaborate with the CDC and others within H HHS and, and other um, uh, federal agencies uh, on uh, the response around COVID-19 and on other public health uh, and emergency uh, issues as well. So in your role as the, the Virginia State Health Commissioner, uh, I'm assuming you have a central, to the extent that there are discussions around the the social determinants of health mm -hmm. in Virginia communities, mm -hmm. I'm assuming you, you play a central role, but do you coordinate with other Virginia State Departments on issues around social determinants? Uh, that's a really interesting question. Yes, uh, one of the things that um, I did when I um, became um, uh, the deputy commissioner of uh, population health is I began reaching out to other state uh, agencies uh, and uh, began having more uh, discussions about the relationship between the work that they do and and health. And I, I, I think that it was really um, heartening to have this discussion because I found that, you know, in talking to folks in housing and community development or in uh, social services, uh, our Medicaid agency and behavioral health agency and so on, they were all dealing with many of the same issues, which is, as you just described, social determinants of health and, and, and realizing that they had a role uh, to play in that. Um, one of the things that we were able to do over the last couple years um, when after I became uh, commissioner is we launched in conjunction with the Virginia uh, Hospital and Healthcare Association, which is the association of all the hospitals in the uh, Commonwealth. We, we got together uh, and partnered with ooh, probably 30 to 40 I don't know the exact number, uh, organizations, uh, um, so uh, hospital systems, uh, some banks, uh, community-based organizations, philanthropies, and faith-based organizations, and a number of um, state agencies. So our uh, the Department of Health, Department of uh, Behavioral Health, DMAS, which is the um, Medicaid agency, social services, Oh, and housing, community uh, development, 
uh, <clears throat> got together and formed something called Partnering for Healthy Virginia. And the focus of that uh, coalition is uh, to look at the, the social economic sort of factors that drive the health and well-being of uh, Virginians, looking at things like um, affordable housing, uh, food insecurity, you know, transportation, uh, educational achievement, all these sorts of things. And um, being a, a resource for local uh, uh, initiatives to, um, to deal with those sorts of issues. And um, that, that group has been doing a lot of work with a, in a number of areas around the state. Um, currently, we have a big project going on looking at diabetes and cardiovascular disease uh, with five large healthcare systems and focusing not simply on the issue of uh, dealing with the medical problems that these uh, uh, people are having, but looking at the health-related social needs that, that uh, these individuals have and how those health-related social needs are connected to um, the sort of structural problems in those communities, right? So uh, food insecurity uh, of an in, the individual diabetic patient is facing will uh, lead to their having difficulty in controlling their diabetes, but that food insecurity may be related to uh, the lack of jobs in that particular right. area. And and so you have, so the hospital has to be working with other community organizations to try to figure out ways to improve that situation if they want to get a handle on what's happening with all the diabetics in that region. Do you, do you see uh, regional differences uh, either around the social determinants or or maybe some any of the more core kind of public health responsibilities you know, say, different. you know, Virginia is a quite diverse state, even though we're not mm -hmm. a huge mm -hmm. state, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Northern Virginia versus the Tidewater versus the Southwest. Yeah. I mean, those are some very different environments. It, yeah. Do you all see a lot of regional differences and have to act differently? Um, yes, uh, there's huge regional differences. You can uh, you can use a, a, a wide uh, paintbrush and talk about urban versus rural, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, in which case you'll see Virginia split into two states, um, essentially the northern and southern side of the states. Um, um, you know, uh, a county like uh, Fairfax is probably in the top five counties uh, in terms of wealth in the country. Uh, and it's reflected in a, about a 20-year difference in uh, life expectancy um, in Fairfax versus, you know, pick a county in far southwest Virginia. Uh, and, you know, if you live there, you can expect to live 20 years less than if you lived in Fairfax. Now, that being said, to be fair to uh, Fairfax, uh, it's a big county, and there are pockets of, of, of poverty and um uh, health disparities within Fairfax. So it, I think it's important to not uh, use such a big um, um, paintbrush to characterize um, geographies. And, and so that's, I we, we make a point of drilling down even further. 
So if you go to our uh, website and look uh, for Health Opportunity Index, um, we, we look at about 31 different factors that um, are essentially social determinants of health, and we put them into this index we call the Health Opportunity Index. And we can drill down right down to the census block uh, level um, which usually comprises about 400 people. So we can look at census blocks, census tracts, um, uh, you know, uh, localities, cities, counties, that sort of thing. Uh, and when you do that, then you begin to realize that uh, within urban areas, like I was saying, there's some, there's a, there's huge differences. Where so in the Fairfax, you have areas where you, you'll see that same spread in life expectancy from one side of uh, Route 1 to the other, right? Right. Uh, in, um, in, in Richmond, uh, you can, you, you know, if I showed you a map of, our, of health, opportunity, health Opportunity Index in Richmond, you, you wouldn't even need to know anything about Richmond to tell me where the African-American community was, for example, because it, it will pop out as this area with very low uh, health opportunity. So, gotcha. so um, yeah, there's big differences in geographies. And, that, and, and what that means, I think, in terms of public health interventions is, our view is that you got to take care of the most vulnerable first. Um, and um, direct your attention there and, and, and really um, try to do your best to improve the health and well-being of that community, not because it, you know you want to ignore others, but they're the ones who are most in need. Um, and if and, and truth is, if you, if we eliminated uh, racial and ethnic health disparities in uh, Virginia, um, you know we'd be probably in the top ten most healthy states in in the in the country. Yeah, if we lifted everybody up to that level, that would that yeah. would that would mean success for all of us. Yeah, exactly. For yeah. all of us, it really would. And we've certainly seen during the current pandemic of you know the fact that as communities we are each only as healthy as our neighbors. It, isn't that the truth? You know, and and um, it, it's been such a good example of that. You know, because we we've. I, I think you and I probably have said things like that before, uh, but it's really brought home by this infectious disease, right? You, you can be young and healthy uh, and get this disease, and you know, for you, it's a it's a really bad cold, maybe, um, but you or not, <laughs> you know, there's a small right. percentage you will wind up being even sicker, but. Um, you know, but meanwhile, you can spread it to somebody else who, for whom it's it's a um, a deadly disease, and you know they uh, die from it or or you know severely harmed uh, by it. Um, so yeah, it's really important um, that we recognize that we're all in this together. Well, you know the the in a lot of ways, public health has been an ignored mission area in the US, partly because, as you know, I've asserted in other venues, you know, we were kind of rely on our our overall wealth mm -hmm. as opposed to taking a, a very you know specific 
uh, approach to making sure that we actually generate and maintain public health for mm -hmm. all of our of our citizens and residents and neighbors. Um, but you know, part of that gets to the attitude of Americans toward public health. And you know, is there any insights you'd be willing to share into you know public attitudes towards public health? Do you do you, do you actually track public attitudes? towards public health? Do you, have you seen any changes or any uh, uh, salient issues in how people have treated public health workers during this crisis? Um, well, I'll deal with that, the last part of those, that set of questions first. I, I, and this is just anecdotal, and we, sure. we don't do any formal studies on it, but uh, the sense that I'm getting, and I, I hear this from my co-workers in public health here in Virginia and across the country for that matter, is that um, the general public is, is very um, supportive, I think, oh, in, in the main, supportive of the, what public health is doing to protect them uh, or help protect them uh, from uh, COVID-19. Um, this pandemic and our response to it, I think, has been one that has increased not only the knowledge about public health, but the understanding of how important uh, public health uh, workers and, and the public health workforce is. Um, now, um, it's also true, that as, you, as you well know, just from you know, reading the news and so on, uh, this response has been um, politicized um, sure. a, a lot um, uh, at the federal level. Um, and uh, as a result of that, there there has been some um, negativity, but it, it comes. It, that's the that's the politicization of it. That's not what people are reacting to. I, you know, most people are, thank you for what you're doing. We really appreciate what you're doing, you know. Uh, and uh, even on something as politicized as, say, like the mat face uh, coverings, right? The overwhelming majority of people are actually um, doing what they need to do to protect themselves, their loved ones, and their communities. Um, when I go out to the grocery store or out and about, in my hometown, most people are wearing masks. Um, so I, I think I think it's been a good response. Um, it's true, like you said, uh, that public health is not a um, in the, it's not very well resourced and uh, it's understaffed. Um, it, it's the, the emphasis and uh, healthcare in the United States is very much focused on specialty care. I mean, so it's not just even um, uh, public health that uh, has been neglected. I, as a family doc, I would say primary care and public health both suffer from that same uh, neglect. Um, my hope is that uh, one of the lessons that will be drawn from what's happened around um, COVID-19 is the necessity of investing in 
um, public health and, and um, primary care, uh, you know, now uh, as we continue our fight against COVID-19, but going forward in preparation for the next pandemic. So you mentioned you know, the, the, the primacy of, of primary care, which I guess is a tautology. Um, but uh, obviously that one of the roles that I believe that the Department of Health plays uh, in Virginia is is on you know, being the regulator of, of ho uh, hospital or acute care hospital capacity mm -hmm. at least. Is that is that right? Yes, we are, there's uh, in Virginia, there's what's called certificate of uh, uh, I was going to say certificate of need, but that's not it's COPN. <laughs> um, but yes. Um, so it's a certificate of need that, that we um, regulate. So the the one of the interesting um, issues that arose in the early kind of more frantic, at least in in our part of the country, uh, times of the pandemic was the the notion of surge capacity. Mm -hmm. And you know we were uh, uh, worried that our our capacity to care for acutely ill patients would be overrun, right. whether it was in the more kind of intensive, you know, ICU kind of venue or or merely, you know, people who needed, you know, nursing care and, you know, constant monitoring and, and you know, provision of oxygen, et cetera. And so uh, does emergency surge capacity either today or maybe in the future become a driver of the regulation of hospital capacity? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was this time around, and I could see that happening uh, in the future as well. The, the, um, as you said, uh, early on in the pandemic, um, we were concerned uh, that um, this could spiral out of control uh, and that we'd be in a situation where we did not have enough uh, hospital capacity um, to deal with uh, the, the uh, number of patients who would need acute care or uh, ICU uh, or intensive care. Uh, we were looking at what was going on in uh, Italy, for example. Right. And saying, you know, we, we got to prepare for that. Uh, so we uh, start looking at the possibility of doing a uh, alternate care facilities, uh, particularly in the, um, I don't know what you would call it, the urban crescent from um, <clears throat> Northern Virginia down through uh, Richmond out to the Tidewater area. Uh, we identified places in uh, Hampton Roads uh, in Richmond and in um, Northern Virginia where we would uh, uh, stand up these acute care facilities, the national Guard uh, was going to be involved in helping to uh, build uh, these uh, facilities. And they can be the Dulles Expo Center, if I recall. That yes, here in Northern Virginia. Exactly. Yeah. And um, the Coliseum down in Hampton, and we identified um, the Richmond Convention Center and one other place in Richmond. And so we're going to build these out as hosp not hospitals, but well, essentially filled hospitals, right? Right. Um, and um, as we were going through those plans and working with the Army Corps of Engineers on this, um, 
you know, of course, the pandemic was continuing to go. And we began to realize that, well, you know, the hospitals were, the hospital systems were able to figure out ways to expand their capacity um, through reassigning of uh, hospital beds. Um, we altered our process on a certificate of need so that we could more rapidly uh, approve these beds. They didn't have to go through the normal process. Um, and we were able to increase bed capacity by, I, don't know, I would say something on the order of 8,000 beds across the Commonwealth. And we realized that uh, given that and given what we were actually seeing on the ground with the cases, um, you know, Virginians responded really well to the stay-at-home uh, order. And we, we were being really successful in, in decreasing the incidence of the uh, disease, um, you know, so-called flattening the curve. And between those two things, we realized, you know, I think we can handle the surge if there is one. Um, and uh, that proved to be the case. So we never actually pulled the trigger on those alternate care facilities. Right. Well, certainly the reduction in uh, discretionary procedures had a, a big role in kind of freeing up beds in, in existing facilities as well. Uh, I know from my role at one of our local institutions that uh, our census went way down before it started climbing again because of COVID. So yep. uh, we had that extra capacity. W exactly. would, you ever would you ever consider, in a, from a planning perspective, uh, you know, God forbid, a, an even more serious uh, infectious disease event um, pre, you know, take, either taking advantage of the planning you've already done or doing pre-planning for kind of other local facilitization of emergency capacity. Um, you know, lying in wait, if you will, kind of not necessarily dedicated, but repurposing hotels or, or you know, these kind of more convention center kind of field hospital sites. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's important to first utilize the infrastructure we have. So I, you know, I think doing what we did, shifting around and utilizing existing um, bed capacity um, would be the first step. And then before doing a field hospital, I think the, the better thing is to augment what the big healthcare systems already have. So, um, give you an example, you, you know, if you are, you're a big healthcare center, we won't name any up in, um, Northern Virginia sure. and you, you fill up your ICU bids, but you have people who actually could be a step down from that and it would free up ICU beds. So having a step down sort of unit that's out in the in a parking lot or a nearby building, yeah, or yeah, like you said, maybe even a close by hotel, that would be a big benefit for that healthcare system because then they could they could um, it would free up the the ICU space. Uh, and the step down care is not quite as acute and you could you could get um, the sort of resources you need to to run that. And it's a lot cheaper than trying to uh, set up an actual field hospital with ICU beds and that sort of thing. Right, right. Well, one of the things that we've seen in the uh, in the current pandemic and um, 
I'm going to assume until you tell me differently that it's kind of reflective of what life was like before is is a huge disparity across the country in uh, how uh, people have approached the emergency, but that, that seemed to reflect a real heterogeneity in just how things get done from a broad perspective. Um, mm-hmm. I'm assuming as Virginia's health leader, you are in 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 contact communication and, and partnership with folks from around the country. Can you give us your perspective on what that you know, U.S. heterogeneity fragmentation kind of looks like and like where you see Virginia in the midst of all that? Right. Well, I'm glad you used the word fragmentation because I, I, I wouldn't call it just heter- heterogeneity. It's, it's really a fragmentation. We do not have a national health care uh, system uh, and we do not have a national system of uh, public health uh, care. And it's um, it's problematic from a whole number of ways, right? So a, a really integrated national system of uh, uh, public health care could uh, coordinate uh, and implement, uh, you know, uh, public health initiatives around um, something like COVID nineteen in a way that would. Um, <clears throat> Uh, save far more many far far many more lives than what we've been able uh, to do here in the United States. That you know, to be concrete, you look at a place like Taiwan, which hasn't had a case of, of tremendously well for, for months now. Right? Um, right? They have a really well organized national system. They go out and they they you know you decide you're going to. Uh, do contact tracing, they get, they blanket the place, right? They do everything. I, and that was true in a number of places. Uh, um, you know, New Zealand um, is another example. Um, you know, South Korea and the way they carried out their, their testing. Um, so we couldn't do that. We were not set up to do that. Um, and um, it, it really hurt us. You know, we we could we knew that the virus was coming in, you know, in January. We knew it was going to get here. Uh, we could have at, with a really well organized national system. I think it would have been possible to, um, you know, ramp up production for uh, testing uh, supplies and that sort of thing. So we we, we we've been playing catch up um, for eight months. Um, what are the biggest differences, you know, when you, if you were to imagine yourself in a different uh, reality where you could be in the same room as your peers from the other 49 states, mm-hmm. um, what are the biggest differences we would observe in the different state approaches, given that we don't have a national approach? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned um, the one of them because you said that Virginia is one of the ones with kind of centralized responsibilities. But are there other important dimensions of, of differences between how states kind of approach the entire mission? Uh, the, the one of the things that you'll see with the um, public health care system here is, you know, I already mentioned that um, uh, some of our public health interventions have been uh, politicized. 
So depending on the political environment in which public health workforce is operating in, you will find public health agencies uh, having different sort of constraints, right? So, ah. uh, so here in Virginia, um, the governor and the secretary of health uh, are very uh, supportive of taking um, really assertive action around, um, <clears throat> you know, non pharmaceutical interventions to protect people from COVID-19. So uh, the governor issued a stay-at-home order uh, in order for uh, to people to stay at home. And he uh, kept that on longer than a lot of other uh, governors uh, did. Uh, uh, issued a uh, mandate for wearing masks. Uh, when we saw a surge in cases in uh, the eastern region, uh, of the state, he uh, stepped in, imposed uh, more strict, more strict uh, guidelines, and you know, increased the restrictions in that in that region. Um, so, whereas in, in other states, that wouldn't necessarily have been the case, and wasn't the case. From uh, the outside in, you know, just in terms of, of public reporting and and whatever trade uh, descriptions I've been able to consume. Uh, a lot was made about the kind of independent authority uh, under the California Constitution of county public health directors, you know, mm -hmm, quite famously, mm -hmm. Sarah Cody leading her colleagues around the Bay Area to institute the first shutdowns. Is, the is, is there a difference in the level of kind of independent authority that public health officials have in different states? Yeah, very much so. And that relates to what we were talking about at the top of this uh, conversation, right? So uh, California does not have a centralized um, uh, state health department. So the county health departments are the ones that, you know, where all that authority lies. And so you, you probably have pretty big differences between what one county will do versus another, both driven by that political environment, but also uh, just resources, right? There, there'll right. be some counties that just don't have the um, kind of resources and staff and everything. And then you'll have counties that are, uh, have a very well-financed uh, county uh, health department. Um, <clears throat> and so um, they can do a lot more. So that, that makes for uh, big differences with even within a state. Um, we, we didn't have, we don't have that issue as much here. I say as much because there is, there is some, uh, component of that. Um, uh, we, our local health departments have cooperative agreements with their local, uh, jurisdictions. And so, and, and part of those agreements is, uh, an agreement for the local jurisdiction to share in, um, helping out with the uh, expense of running that local health department. And so, you know, uh, counties that are more uh, well off uh, can um, provide more resources, more support than than others. So there's some differences that way, but it's I don't think it's as pronounced as uh, it would be if we were not centralized. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
one of the topics that that we've touched on briefly, but that comes up all the time, and I know, uh, you know, my colleagues here at work, you know, work on on a daily basis is the the issue of the information systems that support your mission. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, if I think about the fragmentation mm -hmm. and the fact that we don't have a public, uh, a national public health delivery mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. um, I know that there are, there do exist national data systems, but that are primarily voluntary in terms of state participation. Right. Is there a, um, in your own mind, right? If you, if you were king for a day and you could, <laughs> you could launch no cost constraints uh, included, uh, a complete revamping of our public health information infrastructure. Uh -huh. um, how would you prioritize that, right? We, what uh, aspects uh, of the public health information? That's a huge one, right? Yeah, I mean, which which would be the first thing to get your attention? I, I would say data modernization, I, and by which I mean, um, how is, what data is getting collected? How is it structured? And how is it shared? I, I'd want to see it shared, which means, you know, getting agreement on what data you want, want to have in the first place and, right. and, and, and getting agreement on, you know, like I said, on how it's structured, because the way it's structured would then determine, you know, how you'd be able to access it. Um, and then there's related, there's related uh, things to that, right? They, one, so in, in, COVID-19, for example, we, we get problems with this all the time. We, we, we have, in Virginia, we're dealing with maybe 700 or so different labs that are doing testing on COVID-19. Uh, we're constantly trying, you know, every time one of these new labs comes on board, we have to work out a whole new data use agreement. We have to get them to uh, uh, agree to format their data in such a way that it can then be sent to us electronically so we don't have to hire a whole team of people just to do manual data entry. Um, and, and we keep repeating that, right? Because th these just this past week, there were like 16 new labs that came on board. Um, so having some system already set up would be a huge help. Sure. Uh, uh, you know how how do you how you get that information from the labs? How do you integrate all the data on outbreaks that that occur? Uh, the mortality and 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 morbidity data. Um, it, do you, do you today derive much data from electronic health records, say at at healthcare providers, or does it all have to come over separate portals to you? It comes over separate portals. I mean, I would love to have some agreements with. Um, Healthcare providers and healthcare systems, so that uh, we could. Um, th that would be a a, a big uh, help in public health and also in integrating. You know, for, to the extent that healthcare systems and community-based providers are getting interested in things like social determinants of health and public health matters, I, I think if if we could integrate those. Integration might be the wrong word. If we could find a way to 
have the systems be interoperable and talk to one another and have standards that so we're talking about the same data it would it would be a benefit not only to public health but i think also to healthcare providers of all types um, but then you're getting into some bigger issues around you know data repositories and data governance uh, and that you know that sort of thing which those things might i mean those are going to be issues in any case if we really try and architect a, a national approach exactly there's no way of, of getting getting past that uh, is there uh you know if we think about obviously the the current pandemic situation puts a very very sharp point on mm -hmm. on this discussion um if we think about the before times or the after times hopefully there will be an after time um mm -hmm. where you know, we are worried much more about the, you know, building a steady, steady drumbeat of improving public health and reducing the disparities in outcomes and opportunity. Um, some of those maybe, you know, less critical, urgent, you know, minute by minute changes in the data are, are, are you know, maybe that's less of less important than understanding kind of more. You come from population health background, right? More of that kind of the, the status of a local community and kind of the big the big levers one has to pull. I mean that's a that's a in some ways a different set of data maybe it gets more to the you know prevalence and uh, as opposed to kind of levels of acuity and kind of specific clinical data. Mm -hmm. um, is there is that part of this realm also or is that almost like a separate conversation? No, I think it's part of it. I mean because if you get the data on the individual uh, people, you can always aggregate it up to the community level or whatever sort of population level that you uh, want, and talk, so you can talk about both. And and I'd love to um, do a couple things with that type of data if you had it at a national level or even at a statewide level. Um, um, I could see doing data visualization with that that would would become a powerful tool for uh, designing interventions, um, whether you're doing it from a public health point of view or um, you're a big healthcare system trying to think about, you know, not population health writ large, but, you know, this, you know, how am I going to deal with all my diabetic patients that we're responsible for? Particularly if you're in a, one of these uh, value-based markets where you're you're um, going to be financially liable, for right? You're taking you're, you're taking risk on the health of the population. You take right, so you want to be able to visualize what's going on and everything. And but the other thing that I think could be really powerful about uh, a data uh, system like that is, from an analytical point of view. I would love to see predictive analytics uh, developed, right? Uh -huh. So right now, you know, epidemiologically, what we do is, you know, we run essentially cor correlational kinds of uh, right. statistics, right? I can I can show you that the lack of affordable housing is associated with an increase in name the disease, you know, substance use disorder. Uh, depression, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, whatever. Um, I'd love to, to uh, you know, have have some be able to go to my um, um, 
state senator or the dele delegate from my neighborhood and say, you know, if you if you could work with your colleagues to come up with some money to to increase affordable housing and this in your constituency by 30%, you could expect to decrease uh, infant mortality by X amount. How would you like to save the lives of, you know, a hundred of your constituents, right? Right. <laughs> harkens back, harkens back, not to make light of it, but it harkens back to a, a famous line from the original Ghostbusters. You'd be saving the lives of millions of registered voters. Um, <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, and, and that's, that would be really powerful, right? It, it would be that there's a, uh, one could argue that we don't need sophisticated analytics to know what we need to do. Yeah. Right. But it, it's, it's a matter of political will. I'm not, I'm, I'm not arguing with you as a leader that that would be incredibly powerful and that maybe yeah. that would help you make the case. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the way in which I'm talking about it being yeah. really powerful. I, the truth is, is we all know it's, it's the right thing. I shouldn't say we all know. Maybe you and I know it's the, it's the right thing to do. Uh, but just because it's the right thing to do is, uh, unfortunately, not um, um, often enough to uh, convince people to to do it. Well, speaking of the right thing to do, in in the in the minutes that we have left, um, you know, I want to look forward a little bit. Uh, as a former molecular biologist myself, I you know track the progress going on with all of the vaccine candidates mm -hmm. as close, closely as I can, as my duties permit. And you know, I'm uh, I'm personally cautiously optimistic that out of this incredibly broad field of candidates, you know, something will emerge with good phase three efficacy and safety data. Um, but as as I think we've spoken about before, you know, vaccines don't protect anyone; only vaccinations do. And so, right. vaccines aren't useful unless people will take them. Um, what would you like to see happen between now and whenever? we do have an effective and safe vaccine that's available uh, to and to ensure that you know the broadest population possible is is going to sign up and, and take the vaccination what what do we need to do as a society to make that happen uh, the first thing we need to do is really ensure that um, <clears throat> whichever candidates make it out and onto the streets have been vetted by your uh, scientific colleagues there. Um, well, hallelujah for that. Uh, I, I really think, you know, they, they need to finish the phase three trials, um, you know, and prove their safety and efficacy. Um, you and I both know that having gone through a trial of 30,000 might prove your safety and, and efficacy, but, you know, really rare things are still going to come up. So I think uh, the other thing we have to do is we have to do a massive, massive educational campaign um, to explain to people in, in such a way that it's easily understood by the lay public um, what, you know, that they're safe, effective, um, but not falsely claim that, you know, if we give this to you know, 8 million people in Virginia. Is there going to be some rare thing that may happen? 
that is a adverse effect. Almost certainly. Probably. Almost, yeah. Um, um, almost certainly, right? So, so not not try to shy away from that, but they explain that from the public's point of view, this is going to be safe and effective and help um, stop the um, spread of uh, COVID nineteen. I I think that education campaign is going to be paramount and we need to start doing it now uh, to the extent that we can and it's it's a general because we need a general education around um, vaccine preventable uh, diseases um, I think it's going to be particularly challenging with this one again getting back to the fact that uh, this uh, was the response to COVID-19 has gotten politicized. And to the extent that that's happened, there's some in the public who will view with some skepticism um, a vaccine that comes comes down the pike. And um, I think those of us who are convinced that it's actually been vetted um, in the right way through uh, appropriate uh, clinical trials and so on, we're gonna have to make that point really strong in order to overcome that. And, and unfortunately, that's, that's even more the case in the communities that have been hardest hit by uh, COVID-19. So you look at black and brown communities across this country, um, you know, Northern Virginia, 60% of the cases have been in the Latinx uh, community. And they have uh, a lot of distrust of the, of the government. And it's, you know, I would venture to say it's uh, not unjustified. And um, so to the extent that this has been politicized, we, we, they, have become, they have even less trust around it. Uh, meanwhile, they're the ones who need it the most. Is that, is that, um, so is we, that a role that the, that the Virginia Department of Health would take on, or does that need to be a nationally sponsored effort? Uh, both. We we plan on taking it on. We're going. We're going to. We we are now uh, mapping out plans for such a uh, communication campaign. Campaign. So we're going to do our best to really. Um, once we get a safe and effective vaccine, we're going to do our best to uh, <clears throat> convince the uh, African American community, the Latinx community, and everyone else that um, they should get vaccinated. I, because I agree completely with you, a good vaccine uh, isn't going to protect the population. It's vaccination of millions that will protect them. Right, right. Well, Dr. Oliver, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us today. Um, before we go, is there any uh, any uh, particular message that you'd want to end with uh, in thinking about this kind of broader topic of the public health enterprise that you wish people would understand? I think um, that um, people uh, can really uh, rally around um, public health, uh, having seen uh, the importance of it in fighting uh, COVID-19. And I hope going forward, we would do what they can to ensure that um, we get the resources we need to build a robust uh, public health system. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap it up. Uh Dr. Norman Oliver, Virginia State Health Commissioner, thanks again for being our guest on the podcast today. And uh, I'm a I'm a 
a daily visitor to your COVID-19 data website. So I'll think of you every time in the morning when I go and look for today's numbers. And um, I look forward to success on convincing all of our uh, fellow citizens to get vaccinated once we have a, a safe and, and effective vaccine that's available. Thank you. And thank you for uh, having me. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. Okay, that was terrific. Have a great day. Yeah.